This is the audio lecture for Module 10. Let's get right to it. Chapter 7, Section 1, The Early Middle Ages. In AD 496, Clovis, warrior king of the Franks, was engaged in a ferocious battle. According to the Chronicle of St. Denis, quote, He looked up to heaven humbly and spoke thus, Most mighty God, whom my queen cloth-eyed, worships and adores with heart and soul, I pledge thee perpetual service unto thy faith, if only thou givest me thou the victory over mine enemies. Instantly. His men were filled with burning valor, and a great fear smote his enemies, so that they turned the backs and fled." End quote. King Clovis won this battle, and many others. The kingdom he established was one of many Germanic kingdoms that replaced the unifying force of the Roman Empire in Western Europe. At its height, the Roman Empire included much of the Western Europe. Rome unified the region and spread classical ideas, the Latin language, and Christianity to the tribal peoples of Western Europe. The Germanic peoples who settled in Europe and conquered Rome would later build on these traditions. After the collapse of Rome, Western Europe entered a period of political, social, and economic decline. From about 500 to 1000 AD, it was politically divided, rural, and largely cut off from advancing civilizations in the Middle East, China, and India. Waves of invaders swept across the region, trade slowed to a trickle, towns emptied, and classical learning virtually ceased. For those reasons, this period in Europe had sometimes been called the Dark Ages. Today, historians recognize that this period was not dark. Greco-Roman, Germanic, and Christian traditions slowly blended, creating a new civilization. Much later, this period between ancient times and modern times, roughly from 500 to 1500 AD, would be called the Middle Ages. Its culture would be called medieval civilization, from the Latin words for Middle Age. The Germanic tribes that conquered parts of the Roman Empire included the Goths, Vandals, Saxons, and Franks, spelled F-R-A-N-K-S. Their culture was very different from that of the Romans. They were mostly farmers and herders, so they had no cities or written laws. Instead, they lived in small communities governed by unwritten customs. Kings were elected by tribal councils. Warriors swore loyalty to the king in exchange for weapons and a share in the plunder taken from the conquered battle. Between 400 and 700 AD, these Germanic tribes carved Western Europe into small kingdoms. One of these kingdoms was that of the Franks. In 486 AD, Clovis, king of the Franks, conquered the former Roman province of Gaul, which later became the Kingdom of France. He ruled his new lands according to Frankish custom, but preserved much of the Roman legacy. Clovis took an important step when he converted to Christianity, the religion of his subjects in Gaul. Not only did he earn their support, but he also gained a powerful ally in the Pope, leader of the Christian Church of Rome. As the Franks and other Germanic peoples carved up Europe, a new power was emerging across the Mediterranean. The religion of Islam began in Arabia in 600 AD. From there, Muslims, or believers in Islam, created a new civilization and built a huge and expanding empire. Leaders of the church and a Christian king became alarmed when Muslim armies overran Christian lands from Palestine to North Africa to present-day Spain. When a Muslim army crossed into France, Charles Martel, spelled M-A-R-T-E-L, rallied Frankish warriors. At the Battle of Tours, spelled T-O-U-R-S, uh, in 732 AD, Christian warriors triumphed. To them, the victory was a sign that God was on their side. Muslims advanced no farther into Western Europe, although they continued to rule most of what is now Spain. This nearby Muslim presence remained a source of anxiety to many European Christian leaders. In time, however, medieval Europeans would trade with Muslims whose learning in many areas exceeded their own. 
In 768 AD, the grandson of Charles Martel became king of the Franks. He briefly united Western Europe when he built an empire reaching across what is now France, Germany, and parts of Italy. Also named Charles, he became known as Charlemagne, spelled C-H-A-R-L-E-M-A-G-N-E, or Charles the Great. Charlemagne spent most of his 46-year reign fighting Muslims in Spain, Saxons in the north, Avars and Slavs in the east, Lombards in Italy. His conquests reunited much of the old Western Roman Empire. In 799 AD, Pope Leo III asked Charlemagne to help against rebellious nobles in Rome. The delegation that Charlemagne sent to Rome arrested Leo's opponents. On Christmas Day in the year 800 AD, the Pope showed his gratitude by placing a crown on Charlemagne's head and proclaimed him Emperor of the Romans. This ceremony would have enormous significance. A Christian Pope had crowned a Germanic king successor to the Roman emperors. In doing so, Pope Leo III revived the idea of a united Christian community which came to be called Christendom. At the same time, he also sowed the seeds for desperate power struggles between future popes and Germanic emperors. The pope's action also outraged the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire in Constantinople. While the Western Roman Empire had been collapsing, the Eastern Empire had flourished. The Eastern Emperor saw himself as the sole Roman ruler. In the long run, the crowning of Charlemagne deepened the split between the Eastern and Western Christian worlds. Charlemagne strove to create a unified Christian Europe. Working closely with the church, he helped spread Christianity to the conquered peoples on the fridges of his empire. Missionaries converted many Saxons and Slavs. Like other Germanic kings, Charlemagne appointed powerful nobles to rule local regions. To keep control of these provincial rulers, he sent out officials called Missi Dominici, spelled M-I-S-S-I, next word, D-O-M-I-N-I-C-I, to check on roads, listen to grievances, and see that justice was done. Charlemagne instructed the Missy to administer the law fully and justly in the case of the holy churches of God and the poor, of wards and of widows, and the whole people. Charlemagne regarded education as another way to unify his kingdom. He could read but not write. Still, as a ruler, he saw the need for officials to keep accurate records and write clear reports. Charlemagne set out to revive Latin learning throughout his empire and encouraged the creation of local schools. He also wanted to revive the glory of Rome at the court at Aachen, spelled A-A-C-H-E-N. He brought many of the best scholars of Europe to the palace school there. After Charlemagne died in 814 AD, his son, Louis I, took the throne. Later, after Louis's sons battled for power. Finally, in 843 AD, Charlemagne's grandsons drew up the Treaty of Verdun, spelled V-E-R-D-U-N, which split the empire into three regions. Although his empire did not remain intact, Charlemagne still left a lasting legacy. He extended Christian civilization into northern Europe and furthered the blending of Germanic, Roman, and Christian traditions. He also set up strong, efficient governments. Later, medieval rulers looked to his example when they tried to strengthen their own kingdoms. Charlemagne's heirs faced new waves of invasions. Despite the victory at Tours, Muslims' forces still posed a threat to Christian Europe. In the late 1800 AD, they conquered Sicily, which became the thriving center of Muslim culture. Not until the 900s, when power struggles erupted in the Middle East, did Muslims' attack finally subside. 
About 900 AD, a new wave of nomadic people, the Magyars, spelled M-A-G-Y-A-R-S, settled in present-day Hungary. From there, they overran Eastern Europe and moved on to plunder Germany, parts of France and Italy. Finally, about 50 years ago after, they were pushed back into Hungary. The Vikings broke into the last threads of unity in Charlemagne's empire. At home in Scandinavia, spelled S-C-A-N-D-I-N-A-V-I-A, a northern region that now includes Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, the Vikings were independent farmers, ruled by land-owning chieftains. They were also expert sailors. Starting in the late 700s, they burst out of Scandinavia, looting and burning communities along the coasts and rivers of Europe. Viking sailors were not just destructive raiders. They were also traders and explorers who sailed around the Mediterranean Sea and across the Atlantic Ocean. Around the year 1000 AD, they set up short-lived Viking colony in North America. Vikings opened trade routes that linked Northern Europe to Mediterranean lands. They also settled in England, Ireland, Northern France, and parts of Russia, where they mixed with the local populations. Chapter 7, Section 2, Feudalism and the Manor Economy. A young man of a good family had been trained in warfare. He has proven himself in battle bravely assisting the knight he serves. Now, as another battle looms, his knightly master tells the young squire to kneel. The knight strikes the young man on the shoulder with the flat of his sword or his glove and says, I make you a knight. As his sponsor, the older knight also presents the young man with a sword and spurs. Now the young man is ready to fight for his lord. He has achieved a place of honor and responsibility in the medieval world. He has become a knight. Not all squires were knighted in battle. Others went through elaborate public ceremonies in which their responsibilities were carefully spelled out. Medieval society was a network of mutual obligations. Even knights and nobles exchanged vows of loyalty and service before witnesses. These vows were part of a new political and economic system that governed European life during the Middle Ages. In the face of invasions by Vikings, Muslims, Magyars, kings and emperors were too weak to maintain law and order. People needed protection for themselves, their homes, and their lands. In response to this basic need for protection, a decentralized political and economic structure evolved known as feudalism. Feudalism was a loosely organized system of rule in which powerful local lords divided their land holdings among lesser lords. In exchange, these lesser lords, or vassals, spelled V-A-S-S-A-L-S, pledged service and loyalty to the greater lord. The, the way feudalism was put into practice varied from place to place and changed over time. The political and economic relationship between lords and vassals was based on the exchange of land for loyalty and military service. It was established by custom and tradition and by an exchange of pledges known as the feudal contract. Under this system, powerful lords granted his vassal a fief, spelled F-I-E-F, or a state. Fiefs ranged from a few acres to a hundred square miles. In addition to the land itself, the fief included peasants to work the land, as well as any towns or buildings on it. As part of this agreement, the lord promised to protect his vassal. In return, the vassal pledged loyalty to his lord. He also agreed to provide the lord with 40 days of military service each year, certain money payments and advice. All aristocrats had a place in the structure of power. Below the monarch were powerful lords, such as dukes and counts, who held the largest fiefs. Each of these lords had vassals, and these vassals in turn had their own vassals. In many cases, the same man was both vassal and lord, vassal to a powerful lord above him, and lord to a less powerful vassal below him. 
Because vassals often held fiefs from more than one lord, relationships between them grew very complex. A vassal who had pledged loyalty to serve several lords could have serious problems if his overlords quarreled with each other. What would he do if he both demanded, they both demanded his aid? To solve this problem, a vassal usually had a liege lord to whom he owed his first loyalty. For medieval, medieval nobles, warfare was a way of life. Rival lords battled constantly for power. Many nobles began training in boyhood for future occupation as a knight or a mounted warrior. At the age of seven, a boy slated to become a knight was sent away to the castle of his father's lord. There, he learned to ride and fight. He also learned to keep his armor and weapons in good condition. Training was difficult and discipline was strict. Any laziness was punished with an angry blow or even a severe beating. With, this training, with his training finished, the youth was dubbed a knight, often in public ceremony. His knight master or lord would say words like these, In the name of God, St. Michael and St. George, I dub thee knight. Be brave and loyal. Then the young knight took his place beside other warriors. Knights usually fought on horseback using swords, axes, lance, lances, which were long poles. They wore armor and carried shields for protection. Other soldiers fought on foot using daggers, spears, crossbows, and longbows. In addition to actual warfare, knights engaged in mock battles called tournaments. During the early Middle Ages, powerful lords fortified their homes to withstand attack. The strongholds gradually became larger and grander. By the 1100s, monarchs and nobles owned sprawling stone castles with high walls, towers, and drawbridges over wide moats. They were not merely homes for the lords, they were also fortresses. The knights who defended the castle also lived there. In time of war, the peasants in the nearby villages would take refuge within the castle walls. Wars often centered on seizing castles that commanded strategic river crossings, harbors, or mountain passes. Noble women played active roles in this warrior society. While his hu her husband or father was off fighting, the lady of the manor took over his duties. She supervised vassals, managed the household, and performed necessary agricultural and medical tasks. Sometimes she might even have to go to war to defend her estate. A few medieval noblewomen took a hand in politics. For example, Eleanor, spelled E-L-E-A-N-O-R, of uh, Aquitaine, spelled A-Q-U-I-T-A-I-N-E, was a leading force in European politics for more than 50 years. Women's rights to inheritance were restricted under the feudal system, although women did in times inherit fiefs. Land usually passed to the eldest son in the family. A woman frequently received land as part of her dowry, spelled D-O-W-R-Y, and a fierce marriage negotiation swirled around an unmarried or widowed heiress. A widow retained her land. Like their brothers, the daughters of nobles were sent to friends or relatives for training. Before her parents arranged her marriage, a young woman was expected to know how to spin and weave and how to supervise servants. A few learned to read and write. In her role as wife, a noblewoman was expected to bear many children and be dutiful to her husband. In the later Middle Ages, knights adopted a code of conduct called chivalry, spelled C-H-I-V-A-L-R-Y. Chivalry required knights to be brave, loyal, and true to their word. In warfare, they had to fight fairly. For example, a knight agreed not to attack another knight before the opponent had a chance to put on his armor. Warriors also had to be treated to capture a knight well, or even release him if he promised to pay his ransom. Chivalry had limits, though. Its elaborate rules applied to nobles only, not to commoners. But chivalry also dictated that knights protect the weak, and that included both peasants and noblewomen. In theory, if not always in practice, chivalry placed women on a pedestal. 
Troubadours, spelled T-R-O-U-B-A-D-O-U-R-S, or wandering musicians, sang about the brave deeds of knights and their devotion to their lady loves. Their song became the basis for epic stories and poems. Few real knights could live up to the ideals of chivalry, but they did provide a standard against which a knight's behavior could be measured. The heart of the feudal economy was the manor, spelled M-A-N-O-R, or Lord's Estate. Most manors included one or more villages and the surrounding lands. Peasants, who made up the majority of the population in medieval society, lived and worked on the manor. Most peasants on a manor were serfs, spelled S-E-R-F-S, bound to the land. Serfs were not slaves who could be bought and sold. Still, they were free. They could not leave the manor without the lord's permission. If the manor was granted to a new lord, the serfs went along with it. Peasants and their lords were tied together by mutual rights and obligations. Peasants had to work several days a week, farming the lord's lands. They also repaired his roads, bridges, and fences. Peasants had to ask the lord permission to marry. Peasants paid the lord a fee when they inherited their father's acres or when they used the local mill to grind grain. Other payments fell due at Christmas and Easter. Peasants had little opportunity to use money, so they paid with products such as grain, honey, eggs, or chickens. In return for their labor and other payments, peasants had the right to farm some land for themselves. They were also entitled to their lord's protection from raids or warfare. Although they could not leave the manor freely, they also could not be forced off it. In theory, at least, they were guaranteed food, housing, and land. This system supported the nobility, making feudalism possible. During the early Middle Ages, the manor was generally self-sufficient. That is, the peasants who lived there produced almost everything they needed, from food and clothing to simple furniture and tools. Most peasants never ventured more than a few miles from their village. They had no schooling and no knowledge of a larger world outside. A typical manor included cottages and huts clustered together in a village. Nearby stood a water mill to grind grain, a church, and the Lord Manor's house. The fields surrounding the village were divided into narrow strips. Each family had strips of land in different fields so that the good land and bad land were shared evenly. Beyond the fields for growing crops, there were pastures for animals and meadows that provided hay. The forests that lay beyond the cleared land, and all the animals in them, were usually reserved for the use of the Lord. For most peasants, life was harsh. Men, women, and children worked long hours from sunup to sundown. During planting season, a man might guide an ox-drawn plow through the fields while his wife talked alongside, urging the ox on with a pointed stick. Children helped in the fields, planting seeds, weeding, and taking care of pigs or sheep. In late winter, when the harvest was gone and new crops had yet been ripened, hunger was common. Disease took a heavy toll, and few peasants lived beyond the age of 35. The peasant family ate a simple diet of black bread with vegetables, such as cabbage, turnips, or onions. They seldom had meat. Their that was reserved for the lord. Peasants who poached or illegally killed wild game on their lord's manor risked harsh punishment. If they lived near a river, peasants might add fish to their diet. At night, the family and their livestock, cows, chickens, pigs, or sheep, slept together in their hut. Still, peasants found occasions to celebrate, such as marriages and births. Welcome breaks came at Christmas and Easter, when peasants had a week off from work. At these times, people might butcher an animal for a feast. There would also be dancing and rough sports, from wrestling to ball games. Chapter 7, Section 3, The Medieval Church In the Middle Ages, most Western Europeans were devout Christians, and many of them went on pilgrimages to visit holy places. The medieval writer, Geoffrey Chaucer, noted that when spring comes, quote, then people long to go on pilgrimages. In England, down to Canterbury, they wend to seek the holy blissful martyr, quick to give his help to them when they were sick. End quote. End quote. 
Pilgrimages were only one way that medieval Christians showed their devotion to their faith. The church and its teachings were central to medieval life. It took centuries for Christian missionaries to spread their faith across Europe. But in time, the Roman church emerged as the most powerful force in the region. Religion shaped the everyday lives of Christian Europeans, and the church hierarchy came to exert considerable economic and political power. During the early Middle Ages, the church's most important achievement was converting the diverse peoples of Western Europe to Christianity. In 597 AD, Pope Gregory I sent St. Augustine to convert the Anglo-Saxons in England. From Britain, later missionaries went back to the continent to spread their faith along Germanic tribes. By the late Middle Ages, Western Europe had become a Christian civilization. Anyone who did not belong to the church community was viewed with suspicion. The role of the parish priest. Christian rituals and faith were part of the fabric of everyday life. In villages, the priest of the parish or local region was often the only contact people had with the church. The priest celebrated the mass and administered the sacraments, the sacred rites of the church. Christians believed that participation in the sacraments would lead them to salvation or everlasting life with God. Priests also preached the teachings of the church and explained the Christian Bible, which was in Latin only. They guided people on morality and offered assistance to the sick and the needy. In later Middle Ages, some parish priests ran schools. The importance of village church. The church was a social center as well as a place of worship because it was often the largest public building in a village. Daily life revolved around the Christian calendar, which included many holidays, such as Easter, and local holy days dedicated to the state saints. The main events of each person's life took place at the church. Baptism marked entrance into the community, marriages were performed on the church steps, and the dead were buried in the churchyard. Villages took pride in their church buildings and decorated them with care. In later medieval times, prosperous communities built stone churches rather than wooden ones. Some churches housed relics, which could be possessions or remains of saints. Many people made pilgrimages or religious journeys to pray before the relics, spelled R-E-L-I-C-S. The church required Christians to pay a tithe, spelled T-I-T-H-E, or tax, equal to a tenth of their income. In the early Middle Ages, the tithe supported the local parish. Later, increasing amounts of money went, were sent to Rome. Bishops, who supervised parish priests, managed larger churches called cathedrals. By the 1100s, communities used new technology to build huge cathedrals in the ornate, buttressed form known as the Gothic style, spelled G-O-T-H-I-C. These magnificent buildings were a source of pride to the communities that built them. Cities all over Europe competed to build grander, taller cathedrals. Members of the church contributed money, labor, and skills to help build these monuments glorifying their God. Church Attitudes Towards Women Church doctrine taught that men and women were equal before God, but on earth, women were viewed as weak and easily led into sin. Thus, they needed the guidance of men. At the same time, the church offered a view of the ideal woman in Mary, whom the church believed to be the modest and pure mother of Jesus. Many churches were dedicated to the Mother of God and Queen of Heaven. Men and women asked Mary to pray to God on their behalf. On the one hand, the church tried to protect women. It set a minimum age for marriage. Church courts could find men who seriously injured their wives. Yet they often punished women more harshly than men for similar offenses. Monasteries and Convents During the early Middle Ages, some men and women withdrew from worldly life to the monastic life. They became monks and nuns. 
Behind the walls of monasteries and convents, they devoted their entire lives to spiritual goals. About 530 AD, a monk named Benedict organized the monastery of Monte Cassino, spelled M-O-N-T-E-C-A-S-S-I-N-O, in central Italy. He created rules to regulate monastic life. In time, the Benedictine rule was used by monasteries and convents across Europe. Under the Benedictine rule, monks and nuns took three vows. The first was obedience to the abbot, or abbess, spelled A-B-B-O-T, or A-B-B-E-S-S, who headed the monastery or convent. The second was poverty, and the third was chastity or purity. Each day was divided into periods of worship, work, and study. Benedict required monks to work in the field or at other physical tasks. As part of their labor, monks and nuns cleared and drained land and experimented with crops. Because they developed better agricultural methods, they helped improve the economy of the Middle Ages, which was based on farming. Service and Scholarship In a world without hospitals or schools, monasteries and convents often provided basic health and educational services. Monks and nuns looked after the poor and sick and set up schools for children. They gave food and lodging to travelers, especially to Christian pilgrims traveling to holy shrines. Some monks and nuns became missionaries. These missionaries spread Christianity throughout Western and Central Europe during the early Middle Ages. Monasteries and convents were performed a vital role in keeping learning alive. Their libraries contained Greek and Roman works, which nuns and monks copied as a form of labor. Educated monks and nuns also wrote and taught Latin, which was the language of the church and educated people. In Britain, the Venerable Bede, spelled V-E-N-E-R-A-B-L-E, B-E-D-E, wrote the earliest known history of England. Opportunities for women. Although women could not become priests, many did enter convents. There, capable women could escape the limits of society. In the 1100s, Abbess Hildegard of Bingen, spelled H-I-L-D-E-G-A-R-D of Bingen, B-I-N-G-E-N, composed religious music and wrote books on many subjects. Because of her mystical visions, popes and rulers saw her advice. In the later Middle Ages, the church withdrew rites that nuns had once enjoyed, such as preaching the Gospels, and placed most independent convents under the control of church officials. It frowned on too much learning for women, preferred them to accept church authority. Church power grows. In the centuries after the fall of Rome, the church hierarchy carved out a unique position in Western Europe. It not only controlled the spiritual life of Christians, but gradually became the most powerful secular or worldly force in medieval Europe. The Church's Role in Society During the Middle Ages, the Pope was the spiritual leader of the Western Christian Church, based in Rome. Declaring themselves representatives of God on earth, medieval popes eventually claimed papal supremacy or authority over all secular rulers, including kings and emperors. The Pope headed an army of churchmen who supervised church activities. High clergy, such as bishops and archbishops, were usually nobles. Like other feudal lords, they had their own territories and armies. The Pope himself held vast lands in central Italy, later called the Papal States. Some monasteries also held large tracts of land, which gave them considerable economic and political power. Church officials were closely linked to secular rulers. Churchmen were often highly educated, so feudal rulers appointed them to government positions. In addition, church officials were often relatives of secular rulers. Religious authority and political power. The medieval Christian church was dedicated to the worship of God. At the same time, Christians believed that all people were sinners and that many were doomed to eternal suffering. To avoid the tortures of hell, one had to do good works, believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and participate in the sacraments. 
Because the church administered the sacraments and could deny them as a punishment, it had absolute power in religious matters. The church developed its own body of laws, known as canon law, as well as its own courts. Canon law, based on religious teachings, governed many aspects of life, including wills, marriages, and morals. Anyone who disobeyed church law faced a range of penalties. The most severe and terrifying was excommunication. Those who were excommunicated could not receive the sacraments or Christian burial, which condemned them to hell for eternity. A powerful noble who opposed the church could face the interdict or order excluding an entire town, region, or kingdom from receiving most sacrifice and Christian burial. Even the strongest ruler gave in rather than face the interdict, which usually caused revolts by the common people. The Force of Peace the church tried to use its great authority to end warfare among nobles. It declared periods of temporary peace known as the Truce of God. It demanded that fighting stop between Friday and Sunday each week and on religious holidays. Such efforts may have contributed to the decline of warfare in Europe during the 1100s. Corruption and Reform The very success of the church brought problems. As its wealth and power grew, dis discipline weakened. Pious Christians left their wealth and lands to monasteries and convents, leading some monks and nuns to ignore their vows of poverty. Some clergy lived in luxury. Priests could marry, but some spent more time on family matters than on religious duties, and some even treated the priesthood as a family inheritance. Throughout the Middle Ages, there were calls for reform in the church. Two movements for reform. In the early 900s, Abbot Berno, B-E-R-N-O, set out to reform his monastery of Cluny, spelled C-L-U-N-Y, in eastern France. First, he revived the Benedictine rule of obedience, poverty, and chastity. Then, he refused to allow nobles or bishops to interfere in monastery affairs. Instead, Cluny was placed under the direct protection of the Pope. Over the next 200 years, many monasteries and convents copied these reforms. In 1073 AD, Gregory VII, a former monk, became Pope and began another push for reform. He wanted to limit secular influence on the Church. Gregory insisted that church alone chooses church officials such as bishops. That policy eventually sparked a bitter battle of wills with the German emperor. Gregory also outlawed marriage for priests and prohibited simony, spelled S-I-M-O-N-Y, the selling of church offices. A new preaching orders. Friars, monks who did not live in isolated monasteries, took a different approach to reform. They traveled around Europe, Europe's growing towns, preaching to the poor. The first orders of friars, the Franciscans, was founded by a wealthy Italian now known by Christians as St. Francis of Assisi. Giving up his comfortable life, he preached the Gospels and taught by his own example of good works. Dominic, a Spanish priest, founded the Dominican Order of Friars. Dominicans dedicated themselves to teaching official Christian beliefs in order to combat heresies, religious doctrines that differed from church teachings. Women also supported the reform movement. Some became Dominican nuns, and others reformed the poor clares, spelled C-L-A-R-E-S, linked to the Franciscans. Often, these orders welcomed only well-born women whose families gave a dowry or gift to the church. Another group, the Benguines, spelled B-E-G-U-I-N-E-S, welcomed poor women who could not be accepted by other religious orders. Jews in Medieval Europe In the Middle Ages, Jewish communities existed all across Europe. Jews flourished in present-day Spain, where Muslim rulers were somewhat tolerant of both Christians and Jews. Spain became a center of Jewish culture and scholarship, and Jews served as officials in Muslim royal courts. 
In other parts of Western Europe, Christians and Jews lived side by side in relative peace for centuries. Early German kings gave educated Jews positions at court. Many rulers in Northern Europe valued and protected Jewish communities, although they taxed them heavily. By the late uh, 1000s, Western Europe had become more Christianized and prejudice against Jews increased. When faced with disasters they could not understand, such as illness or famine, Christians often blamed Jews. Jews were not part of the parish structure that regulated Christian lives. Therefore, they had little interaction with the Christians who were suspicious of a culture they did not understand. As the church grew in power, it issued orders forbidding Jews to own land or practice most occupations. Yet popes and rulers still turned to educated Jews as financial advisors and physicians. In response to growing persecution, thousands of Jews migrated to Eastern Europe. Large Jewish communities developed there and experienced periods of relative tolerance and prosperity and periods of persecution.